0: Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trunanne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 103 of the podcast, the topic is the future of freedom. Our guest is Alex Gladstein, chief strategy officer at the Human Rights Foundation. In this conversation, we talk about decentralization, Bitcoin versus cash, human rights, Surveillance states, digital authoritarianism, activism in a digital age, the mixed blessings of encryption, what it means to be an open society, currency neutrality, and beyond. Before you do anything else, make sure you are subscribed to our newsletter on futurize.org. I hope you can also leave a positive review on iTunes or in your favorite podcast player. It really matters to the future of this podcast. Thank you so much. Let's begin.
1: Alex, how are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, um, I am interested in what got you to the human rights and freedom game from uh, from your background. You've sure. been working now in, for a bunch of years in, in this domain. You're sort of a journalist, also in you know published a lot in in, in this domain. What got you initially interested in freedom?
1: Yes, yeah, so I was a child of the nine eleven and Iraq war age in the United States. I uh, went to high school a- at a time when uh, 9-11 happened when I was uh, about 14, 15 years old. And um, we, my country invaded Iraq uh, in 2003 when I was 17. And this played a huge impact on me. And I, I went to university partly to understand why did we do that. And um, I studied international relations, Middle Eastern studies, and I got very interested in the concept of um, individual rights, freedom, and the geopolitics behind that. And I was lucky enough to get an internship at the Human Rights Foundation at the end of my university experience. And I've been there ever since. So uh, I've been there almost 15 years. So studying authoritarianism, studying how to help people under repressive governments. Uh, And a lot of that is related to technology right
0: you actually went to Tufts, which is in my backyard where I live right now in uh, you know outside Boston so
1: so yeah. that's where you got your international degree yeah I went did three years at Tufts one year at the School of Oriental and African Studies in London um, and was also able to take some classes at Fletcher when I was at Tufts so uh, I enjoyed my experience there um, but have learned a lot more <laughs> at hrF let's put it that
0: way. <laughs> Interesting. Well, isn't that true? Like sometimes we learn a lot more in our other engagements than in school. Um, that's that. That's no different. So you're also a faculty at Singularity University, where you work on tech and freedom issues. Uh, how does that connect with? Uh, yeah, with I human mean, rights since
1: 2017, and? I've been giving talks to the Singularity University community. Uh, sometimes abroad, uh, in cities around the world, I'll do stage talks in front of couple thousand people. Uh, Sometimes I'll do more intimate executive education to maybe a room of 75 people. Um, So some of that obviously has been put on hold given the pandemic. Um, But it was, yeah, it was exciting. So I would talk about um, technology, governance, democracy, money, Bitcoin. Uh, This was the area that I I would normally cover for them. Did you have a tech background ever or was this
0: just something that has uh, evolved throughout your studies of, uh, I guess, it, you know, it, it just is a topic that has become. Yeah. I
1: don't important. have uh, an advanced technical background. I do not code. Um, but uh, I, I've practically worked with liberation technology for more than a decade in terms of trying to help understand how to use uh, things like whether, whether it's ranging from, from PGP to, to VPNs to encrypted messaging and trying to help activists learn how to use those things. And then that has carried on to helping people understand how to use Bitcoin as safely as possible. Um, so, I mean, I, 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 I'm i not a technologist, but I, I try to spend as much time as possible understanding like the human impact of technology.
0: Well, I would argue that makes you maybe all the more a technologist. It was it was not an attempt to me to de- to unmask whether you code or not. I think
1: no, no, no. I that, just want to make it clear. I'm not. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm not a product builder. I, I know a lot of amazing <clears throat> product builders, and I'm here to help advise them and comment on what they're building. And I kind of uh, if it you know, I have a let's put it this way. Uh, I should be able to use your product because <laughs> if I can use it, then most people could use it. You know.
0: Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the the concepts that you care about the most you mentioned something that's not on everybody's mind you called it liberation technology and you specified that it is for activists I know a couple of other things I can throw in there you know I know survi- surveillance states is on your mind
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, there's this idea of digital authoritarianism I guess on the other side uh, and then you you know have you have the ideas of the open society you know in between and and, and it's all, I guess, related to the consequences of the digital age. Can you unbundle Mm -hmm. these things for us and tell us what's at stake? um, What do these concepts mean and what should people think
1: about? Yeah. So look, historically speaking, we went from everybody living under tyranny to some people breaking out of it through democracy, rule by the people. I mean, you know, invented by the ancient Greeks and, uh, West Africans, uh, thousands of years ago, this idea that we could be ruled by, uh, rules and not by rulers had a slow but persistent, um, I would say evolution through, uh, the last couple thousand years culminating. And of course the American revolution, uh, and the ideas in the declaration of independence and the enlightenment and the industrial age that the enlightenment gave birth to, um, these continued to be very imperfect. Uh, Obviously women, minorities could not get full participation, still can't in many places. Um, But in many democracies, you have like a much more just uh, society than you did several hundred years ago. People are much more in in control of their lives um, and have ways to hold the rulers accountable, right? This was especially apparent after world war one in Europe where you, you kind of really had um, uh, the aristocracy fall quite a bit from their power. Um, Now, Today, fifty-three percent of the world's population still lives under an authoritarian regime. So, you know, mm-hmm. you could look at it glass half full or glass half empty. You know, whatever, whatever you wanna whatever you, you know, whatever perspective you want to bring to this issue. But it's still a massive global issue. I mean, half the world lacks, you know, the basic freedoms that that the other half has a lot more of, right? And to complicate things, even more so, we have the digitization of society. So I think you had this like really like persistent, uh, expansion of freedom over the 20th century, uh, in many places. And then like, you know, in the 1980s, we started to question what was going to happen in the future. Let's say in Western democracies, uh, there's a book in written in the 1980s called the rise of the computer state, where people started to realize that the stuff in 1984 may actually happen on computers and that these devices, people were really worried about nuclear warfare in the 1980s, but people really started to worry about what, what what exposing ourselves to computers all the time would do to us as a society. Um, and for me, I, I really enjoy this part of history because there's two camps. One was the kind of, the guy who wrote the book, Rise of the Computer State, I mean, his solution was that we should lobby governments to protect us in the digital space. And the modern equivalent would be like Shoshana Zuboff, who says we need to like fight the companies and fight surveillance capitalism and and get governments to regulate them. So that idea that we should solve this issue of protecting our human rights in the digital age through lobbying essentially and through reform and through regulation, that's one perspective. Um, I don't think that's going to work very well. Uh, I take a different approach building off of what a group of people called the cypherpunks did in the 1980s and 90s, where they wanted to actually just claim their rights with open source code. They realized that no amount of negotiation or begging would win your human rights and freedoms uh, from certain governments and corporations. Like they're just going to take whatever they can. So let's make it impossible for them to take it, okay? Through open source code. And their creations gave birth to encryption. So Phil Zimmerman in the early nineties came up with PGP, which was really the first way for two PC users to be able to send a secret message to each other anywhere else in the world. This was incredible, powerful technology, liberation technology, and the US government did not like it. The Clinton administration did not like it. Joe Biden did not like it. They all went after it at the time. Um, They tried to stop it. They failed. Open source code is hard to stop. Once the genie's out of the bottle, it's kind of out into the world. So, you know, thankfully they didn't stop it because open source code in the way of public key cryptography ended up giving birth to the ability to encrypt a credit card message over the web, like, you know, like e-commerce, like this whole boom of Silicon Valley, like a lot of that was because of um, innovations in cryptography and uh, has made uh, obviously has has improved America in, in the minds of many around the world and, and has given rise to a lot of the wealth uh, that, that that was created in the last several decades so um for me uh, I, I see this kind of like persistent march this uh you know arc of history bending towards more freedom but it gets a little more complicated in the last couple of decades like you know we we have these tools that we can fight with open source, tools like like cryptography like that like signal being a good example anyone with a smartphone can send an encrypted message to anyone else protect our privacy is encryption
0: though entirely positive i mean encryption can be many things right and encryption on the web can also be negative thing no for freedom
1: yeah I th- so the, for me that that's uh seeing the you know you know you're missing the forest for the trees i mean that's what the clinton administration tried to argue they said encryption was going to be used by drug dealers and terrorists and pedophiles and that's why they wanted to ban it okay um government is always going to want to say this because they always want to know everything about you so the only thing to prevent governments from knowing everything about us and from socially engineering us and from getting rid of dissenting voices uh is cryptography i mean it's the only thing that protects us uh it is a shield it is a defense mechanism. And it, it is neutral. You're right in that it does not discriminate. Bad actors have used a lot of um, cryptography. But guess what? They also used email, mobile phones, roads, helicopters, cars. Like, it, it doesn't mean we should allow them to hold us hostage and not innovate. Like, we need to keep moving in this direction, especially because I think this is what's important to note. The real criminals in today's world are governments and corporations. They are not like some shady network bad guy. Like, th- this is... Governments and corporations are the problem. You know, the Chinese Communist Party is the one genociding several million Muslims. Like that, that. That. Like, there's no like small like terrorist group that is capable of wielding the horror on the human population that governments and corporations are capable of. So, you know, for me, uh, you got to
0: defend that though. Governments and companies are the real are the real crooks and criminals. Absolutely,
1: there's just no question. There's no question. I mean, what like. Um, for example, uh, just in terms of the scale of their crimes, there is a company, uh, this was in the context of like discussing new technology, uh, Danska Bank uh, several years ago was caught laundering more money for the Russians out of one bank that they ran in, in uh, the Baltics than the entire market cap of Bitcoin. <laughs> That's just one example of one bank in one branch in one country. You know, so the bankers are saying, Oh, Bitcoin is scary. Um, it's gonna be used by bad guys. Meanwhile, with the other hand, they're laundering so much money for the Russians, literally, that it's more than all the Bitcoin that exists in the world. So you have to like zoom out and see the bigger picture. If you look at the Panama Papers, if you if you look at these like, if you start sifting through the Panama Papers, you start to understand just how much money laundering and fraud and theft there is at the government and corporate levels in the, in the world today. I mean, it's astonishing. I mean, the UN even says that there's trillions of dollars a year laundered through the existing financial network. So what I mean by that is that if you look at deaths, war, crime, suffering, criminality, uh, individual actors and bad individuals and, and bad groups uh, pale in comparison to the impact, the negative impact on humanity that governments and corporations have. And I don't necessarily mean Norway or, or Canada. I mean, I'm talking about Saudi Arabia, Russia, the CCP, like these people are committing horrible crimes on, on humanity. I mean, well, you and, say and,
0: these people, I just wanted you to be specific mm-hmm. because, you know, w- when you're making an accusation against an entire government, mm-hmm. uh, I guess there's two things, you know, how, how do you prove those accusations? And even if you are right, who within those governments do you hold responsible? right? I guess th- does it for you depend on whether it's a democratic system or not? Because in a democratically elected system, I guess the government is responsible. so you, you 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 sort of got to get rid of the government and then then the problem should should be gone because they they were the ones that were responsible. But in other countries, perhaps less so.
1: Who are you actually incriminating in this? Well, for dictatorships, it's easy. It's always one man pretty much that controls everything. So in in the case of uh, the invasion of Ukraine and the murder of Nemtsov and the um, assassinations of journalists and poisonings of dissidents in Russia, that's all on Mr. Putin, okay? Very squarely. Um, In the case of Saudi Arabia, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, the atrocities in Yemen, uh, the torture of female political prisoners, that's all on Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, right there uh, Xi Jinping has written his name into the Chinese constitution. Um, the concentration camps in Xinjiang did not exist before his term. Um, there were, there was a heightening of, of, of persecution, uh, in that part of China during his predecessor's term, but he has created the genocide, um, personally. So, um, I try to make pains to distinguish these things I love the Saudi and Chinese and Russian people and they are to be celebrated. Their governments are the criminals. As far as Western governments, it, it's it's a totally different ballgame. I mean, people elect their leaders. Some of them are good. Some of them are corrupt. Um, but the system, as you say, has a way of rotating the bad ones out. Um, generally, speaking, that doesn't
0: mean that uh, that countries can't do bad things. I was just I'm just trying to understand your demarcation line, because you said, mm-hmm. you know, countries like Canada, Norway, uh, I don't know. Actually, that list may be short, the, the list of countries no, like, <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't, no, it you wouldn't blame for much because surely, you know, there are things you could blame even Canadians for and, and perhaps even Norwegians if I dig deep down. Right? Sure. I mean, these countries have, have made choices throughout their histories and mm-hmm. maybe even today they're doing stuff, you know, uh, keeping a petrochemical industry alive. I mean, there are many, many things you could blame governments for. So I'm just, I guess, on the good side of governments, you know, I guess the challenge when you're sort of you know, holding so many countries culpable is who are the good guys and how do you actually maintain that sort of uh, standard for, for who to praise? Because I mean, the good everyone's guys are, bad,
1: are people, like, the good guys are individuals. The good guys are, are the men and women and, and children in the world. I mean, the the, 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 governments are an imperfect way for us to uh, coordinate and operate societies at scale. Um, and We need to design ways to hold them accountable and to push for reforms when they do bad things. Democratic societies are much better at this. In the United States, which again has done many horrible things, has a horrible prison system, has invaded other countries, I could go on and on. The point is, has systematic racism. The, The point is, in America, I have fr- free press, I have property rights, I have due process, I have an independent judiciary, tens of thousands of nonprofits I can donate to to sue the US government, et cetera, et cetera. I can make a living getting rich, making fun of the president in my country. Doesn't mean my country doesn't do bad things, but this structure of accountability and, f- and freedom really does not exist in 4 point, for 4.3 billion people. And 53% of the world's population lives under an authoritarian regime. So that's across 90 plus countries where they cannot go on TV and make fun of the president. They don't have real property rights. There is no Supreme Court that's going to protect them against uh, the, the the state, essentially. Uh, they, they have no New York Times. Um, they, they can't whistleblow without getting killed. Um, so at HRF, I've studied just how this phenomenon of authoritarianism and how dangerous it is and how problematic it is, um, simply because it removes the usual tools that citizens would use Uh, to achieve reform or to push for a better society in a peaceful way that dictators take that away from people. Um, So, you know, through all of my work, I've watched how, uh, how difficult it is to change societies inside dictatorships and inside authoritarian regimes. And we've come to the conclusion that technology is really key. Like when it comes to North Korea, what are you going to do? Well, I mean, are you going to negotiate with the, with the Kim regime? I mean, they're going to take advantage of you what we realized would making a bigger impact was actually smuggling flash drives of outside movies and content into North Korea so people could educate themselves and make their own decisions. This was built off of our work in Cuba. So at the end of the day, a lot of technology can be incredibly empowering for people. Well, so
0: let's talk a little bit about, before we just get deep into the technology, I was curious, Uh you know, what, what is the best governance model? Because you said that government generally is an imperfect way. I'm assuming you also think that Western governments are imperfect uh, so so how do you restructure governance in the west and beyond you know it's an interesting question technology plays a part how, but how, how do you do it because I guess there's degrees of of problems right yeah I mean look
1: liberal democracy is is the uh, you know least bad of all the options like it is what we have and it, it works really well for for many countries I mean I think that I don't want to lose sight of the fact that most people that I work with would, would sacrifice everything to have like 1% of the freedoms that Norwegians have. Okay. So, so I want to make it really clear that I'm not trying to draw any moral equivalences here. Like liberal democracies are the best we have. Um, they are not perfect. They continue to sell weapons to bat to dictators. They continue to, uh, manipulate the world's economic system. They're they're They are not innocent, but They are way better than a, than, than a, than a dictatorship. Um, that's, that's where I come from at least. Um, I I think no one wants to live under a strong man. I I don't believe in this idea that like people, they want this like dictator to rule over them and like, just keep things sort of stable. I, I think that's a lie. So I, I think that everybody wants to have a little freedom and, and ability to express themselves.
0: Well, everybody wants to have freedom, but I mean, there has been this trend across the, Europe and other places over the last few decades with the rise of uh, kind of right-wing parties with at least some practices and, and some ideologies that are going in different directions, arguably. What, how do you What do you make of that? Because well, are- there was this idea that democracy had won, right? You know, like the end of history, all that stuff, <laughs> yeah. like the liberal argument and it seems to me that that wasn't unique you know it wasn't universally true like not everybody has bought into this
1: thesis that you got there no, yeah no it's certain that was not my thesis i mean i keep hammering away that most people don't even live in a democracy like that that the idea that 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 i think some people interp- misinterpret fukuyama i don't want to defend him but like obviously i don't think he was saying democracy is the solution for everybody right now when he was writing that The Soviet Union was still like in a transition phase, out right. So we didn't know what was going to happen next, right? So uh, clearly, we are not at the end of. There is no such thing as the end of history. And um, most people don't have. It was a fun title, though, for an article. It was a fun title, but no one. Again, we've gone. We stagnated. I mean, look in Philippines, Bangladesh, and Turkey. That's like almost a half billion people. They've gone backwards in civil liberties, in Thailand. If you add the four countries together, it's a half billion people that have gone backwards in the last decade
0: in terms of- Yeah, I was just
1: trying to understand because, so you're not saying just because you think morally
0: there are certain things that most people want and and actually ideally want to Uh live under, doesn't mean that it's all marching in that direction. No, no, certainly mm -hmm, not. Yeah,
1: Yeah, I mean, when you talk about Eastern Europe, these are anti-democratic forces. The forces in Hungary and Poland are anti-democratic. They're against the free press. They want to persecute minorities. They want to consolidate and centralize power. These are authoritarian forces. These are not liberal forces. These are not democratic forces. Um, They might be populist forces. I think it's extremely important to separate populism from democracy. Uh, Hugo Chavez was a populist. He was also a dictator. Um, You can try to be nationalistic and jingoistic, but that doesn't mean you are respecting rule of the people. Um, in reality, Chavez was creating a little empire for himself, where he and his family like lavished at the expense of the people. So um, I think it's quite important to, to take pains to differentiate these things. Uh, I think politically speaking, it is very difficult for societies to to become more open. The, this is a, it's a real struggle, and it, it it is a celebration when anyone when any society does do this. It's an incredible moment. I mean when the Sudanese got rid of Bashir two years ago, I mean, that was an incredible moment. Now it is not, you know, they, they, they continue to struggle, but like those are incredible moments that deserve to be celebrated. But generally speaking, there's a lot of um, inertia with the establishment. They're very difficult to get rid of. And I guess what I'm saying is um, technology has an interesting effect on this. Were it, were it not for cryptography and were it not for, the ability of open source code that the cypherpunks pushed forward. I, I would have a very dark view of the world today because most technology strengthens the establishment, strengthens authoritarianism. We talk about big data analysis, AI, all these things. These things are highly centralizing and they 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 will permit more social engineering and control. So that's kind of like a very scary arc that we're on. And, you know, thankfully we have some tools to fight back and I'm excited about those, but the general trend is is for the establishment to get stronger and more kind of entrenched, which is which is scary.
0: So let's talk in, in more detail about, I guess, Bitcoin and blockchain, because you seem to uh, have the sense that that is generally going to be used uh, as a force for good. Uh, and I would perhaps say, you know, initially it would seem like that, but does, isn't it true with all technologies that they can u- be used for many things, that they're sort of like... A, the, the, they're they're not necessarily always going to continue in the initial direction of either the founders or the social movement that appropriates it, you know, early on. So I'm just curious if you look at Bitcoin and the way it's been used in the first decade of Bitcoin, mm-hmm. it sort of goes in one direction. What makes you so certain? And and what is it about Bitcoin as a currency and blockchain, kind of as like a decentralizing protocol, perhaps? What is it that makes you so certain, or you seem certain that mm-hmm. that this is generally a, a good thing and will remain that way, even if banks are starting to appropriate it themselves and b two b uses of blockchain, you know are yeah. actually escalating.
1: It's a great question. Um, so I think it's worth just dwelling on this neutrality piece for a second uh, that that all, as you say, all technology is 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 neutral. There's two sides to everything. I guess what I'm, what my, my argument is that's, there's more nuance to that. Like, again, before we get to Bitcoin, just take public key cryptography and let's call it AI or big data analysis. To me, these are not neutral from a political sense. Public key cryptography empowers the individual at the expense of the authority. It makes me able to do things that the government can no longer control. Okay. Uh, AI and big data analysis empowers the authority at the expense of the individual. So while they are neutral in as much as anybody can use them, they they have politically different implications. Uh, and governments are very aware of this. So that well, I guess well, I just wanted well, to say let's that let's be first.
0: precise. So AI and big data, the two of them together empowers, I guess, the people who have the most of who it. Who collect right? the data. If you, have, if, you ha- if you collect it, if you have it, if you have access to analyze it, and mm-hmm. if you have the algorithms and the technology and the people to understand what you've got collect- collected, right. yes, you have the power. So it empowers anybody who has the resources to use it and marshal it, right? So so, so that's what AI does. But right. you can sort of say it equally empowers people, right? Because so there could be social movements and there could be the- democratic- I, I,
1: I would be hard pressed to give you an example of how AI, and when I say AI, I, would, I mean, it's a buzzword, but what I'm really talking about is big data analysis. Um, I would be hard pressed to find an example of big data analysis that empowers civil liberties. I cannot think of one. I've spent years thinking about it. Maybe you have one. Uh, it is, it is good for environmental stuff. It's good for medical stuff. It's good for a lot of different things. Clearly. Um, I think it's very bad for civil liberties. I think it enables social engineering on a massive scale. We're watching this happen in China right now. Uh, people are essentially with the tools of AI, uh, you know, and big data analysis, they are being steered in a direction where they get certain perks if they are patriotic. And if they are not patriotic, they lose things. And that that is a way that this is sort of uh, social engineers are able to control society in a way that dictators of the past could only dream about. And and I really feel very strongly about that. So I mean, look, if you if if folks have counter examples of like, how AI is going to help my privacy or freedom or free speech or stuff like that, I'm, I'd love to hear, but I, I, can't, I can't find any examples.
0: Well, I mean, you You don't think that uh, technology like that can help uh, m- create more transparent elections or, or create more part- e-participation is not a good thing for you? I don't think that has anything analysis? to do with
1: big data analysis. No, I think that has more to do actually with cryptography. There's ways to use cryptography on the other side of things, again, to empower the individual that... That could actually, yeah, engender a more robust election system. David Chalmers. Oh, but I mean, if this. you're
0: collecting a lot of data that actually is, uh, I, uh, this is surprising to me that you would say this because when I think about the future of uh-huh. e-governance and e-participation and and even e-democracy or democracy as such, in in my paradigm, there certainly is a space for understanding people better. In in other words, you know. When democracy was just, you know, a vote, that's a, like a snapshot of a person's life. You're asking them to make one vote and then have someone represent them, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. then you obviously have the direct democracy version, like the Switzerland type approach where you're asking people all the time. But, I mean, big data would empower governments to more deeply understand their citizens, right? In, in their everyday decisions. And you could potentially actually enable a real...
1: Uh, see, I don't have that system. trust in government, though. I, in my job, I've seen what governments do. Uh, you know, well, it depends people, on your. It depends your trust in government. Precisely. If you have so a most, government
0: you trust. It, I, I would say the opposite of the coin is true.
1: <laughs> a, <laughs> right, but most people in the world live under a government you cannot trust. Is what I'm saying. So, uh, maybe for a minority, you're correct. Okay, maybe for like so a small percentage of the world lives under like a full liberal democracy with property rights. Okay. So for those people, yes, it is possible that a benevolent government can make, you know, can can improve on these areas. I'd say it's a stretch and a theory. And I, I, again, I haven't really seen evidence of it. um, But I, again, I'd love to like stay posted and, and try to learn, but I, I've been scouring, scouring stuff. and, And to me, like from a human rights perspective, these kind of like centralizing big data technologies are, are to be feared and to be challenged and to be researched and analyzed and, and pushed back against. Um, and the other side of it should be celebrated stuff that can help help us protect against that stuff. Uh, a technology that, that is asymmetric, that empowers the individual at the expense of the authorities, the stuff that I think will help us prevent, you know, a, a panopticon essentially. I mean, it's, it, Big Brother only works if it gets fed a lot of data. Like if you want to shrink Big Brother or surveillance capitalism, you have to like re- reduce the amount of data it's eating. You have to like shrink it. So, you so have what, to kind of da- it.
0: what kind of data are you concerned about? Because, you know, people talk about big big data. And uh-huh. uh, I feel like sometimes there's this assumption that there's so much of this big data out there that's very useful. But in, in actual fact, if you talk to some people who are actually trying to mine uh, mine that data. There, there isn't actually that much big de- uh, data available that's that's useful enough to to actually come to some to smart conclusions. I mean, are you are you worried that there actually is? Uh, there are great data sets right now. I mean, let's just take the Cambridge Analytica yes. situation for a moment. I mean, the idea there. I don't know what your opinion is on it, but you know, at some point there was the thought that there's so much data that they have access to
1: uh-huh. that they
0: essentially control individuals. They can go there and predict how you will vote or whatnot, and they have this perfect psychographic sort of picture of people. Right. That doesn't, I, I don't think that holds up. Like the, nah. the later analysis of that was those people were winging it. They had some yeah. semi-decent set of Facebook data that they had gotten hold of illicitly, uh, so, partly, and they combined it with some you, you know, some
1: data on okay. households. Let me, let me, I agree right? with you on that. But it's
0: that. not that perfect. Okay,
1: that was overblown. But let me give you an example. In the world's largest country in China, I have friends who are Chinese, who, who go back and forth, right? So it is so advanced that if you send... So Tiananmen Square, obviously, was when Chinese students, led by Lu Bo and others in 1989, rose up against... Peacefully, the Chinese state and they were crushed. And thousands of people were massacred um, on live television, and we remember this every June Fourth every year. In China, the the topic is the Six Four incident is so sensitive that, it, and the big data analysis is so good that my friend she she shared an image that her uncle sent her, which was essentially like it doesn't even say six four. Six four is, is, is in Chinese, how you would essentially translate the, the Tiananmen massacre. It was like an image, a natural image found in nature. I won't go into detail, but essentially it had like six and four kind of, and people were using it as a symbol that sharing that image alone was enough to get her entire WeChat completely banned. And she no longer has access to it. That was only possible because of big data analysis. So that's like a very good example of what I'm talking about. That's what I'm very afraid of is governments having our access to our communications data being able to sift it, sort through it and engineer us so that they can close us off from certain things and empower some people over others.
0: So it's about information filtering for you. It's about the information we're not getting. and it's Behavioral and transaction data
1: being key. Like our, what we say, uh, what we do, who we hire, who we pay, what we buy. So if I buy something on Amazon, that's like a, a, book critical of the government, what will happen to me. In some societies, I'm fine. In other societies, I'll get slammed with advertisements that are similar. Like like I personally, uh, two years ago, and I'll never forget this, I um, walked into a store to buy dog food for my dog, and I had my phone in my pocket, and I had my credit card. This was an in-person transaction, and I bought a very specific item, dog, toothbrush-shaped dog treats, okay? And I bought them with my visa chase card. This was not a swipe or I didn't use the internet. It was like just the card itself. Okay. Five minutes later, I got an Instagram ad for that particular product. Okay. Or a very similar one. Um, so I researched it. I was like, that's impossible. What was my phone like spying on me? Like as it turns out, chase shares in detail, your transaction history with a huge number of third parties immediately upon your transaction and you actually agree to this when you sign the terms of your Chase card. So in that case this this is the surveillance capitalism that that Shoshana Zuboff talks about. So these this third party corporate business market has a real time understanding of my behaviors, okay? Now, am I terrified of that? No, not really because I live in California and there's no secret police here. But like you can start to see where that's going and and that's i not can good. but my
0: counter to you is simply this um i feel like sometimes people who are very upset about all these things uh-huh. they got to realize that this is just a choice like this is just a choice it's only happening in the us because we're letting it happen if people said agreed this is not acceptable we would simply change it i right? just well, you know people talk about regulating big tech or regulating uh-huh. tech. it's not impossible it's just it's a choice it's a democratic it, state well, you know, California, it's a democratic
1: country in the U.S. Well, if,
0: if people enough people said, we don't want that, then Chase would have to stop.
1: I agree with you to an extent. Um, what I'm saying is getting Chase to stop is not so easy. Um, regulating is hard. Big tech is very powerful. The way that I will stop feeding my data is by using Bitcoin. So I'm going to buy stuff with lightning, hopefully in the future, which reveals nothing about me and is the same as using cash, okay? So when you make a, a purchase in a store with with, a, with a, a 20 euro note or a 500 crown note or a $20 bill or wherever you are, when you make that purchase, the merchant doesn't know your name, they don't know anything about you, they don't know what you bought last or what you're gonna buy next. They just know that you have enough to pay and that was fine. You went to the bookstore, bought a magazine, you bought a medical procedure, whatever. This is how society was, okay? Even like checks, even like checks, obviously accounted for a huge amount of American and European transaction volume over the last hundred years before we went digital, even checks have just like a very minimal amount of information on them. And then we didn't have the big data analysis necessary to like link all that together. So you went from an economy of bearer assets, checks and cash to an economy of swipes uh, and chips. Okay. So now when you buy that book, all of a sudden, as I mentioned, all this stuff starts to happen, right? So what I'm saying is the reason I like Bitcoin so much is it it paves the way for a future where we can preserve our freedoms and privacy and still transact digitally. So you as a merchant can accept my final payment that is good as gold, even better, good as Bitcoin. and you don't need to know anything about me like that's just the way it is okay now
0: so let's uh let's let's uh, cool. go
1: down this path
0: uh tell me what uh-huh. what is the freedom stack so you know I, i'm thinking about this as a software stack for, sure. for freedom so you're you've said pgp encryption yeah uh payment via some bitcoin protocol that is uh engineered in a specific way you've mentioned lightning and mm-hmm browsers i you know you're recording with me here on a regular browser because i don't think zencaster would accept an anonymous one they at least have told me <laughs> yeah that. so you have a little bit of trust in me or you have a little bit of trust in where you are currently
1: yes so you're this not is a public completely- recording this is a public recording so i'm happy to yeah, reveal yeah. everything in fact but- that says fight the surveillance state, but right now we're like sharing everything with the world. So I'm
0: with you. I'm with
1: you. Um, what I'm saying is
0: that. So what is the rest of this freedom stack? That and and how much of it do you consciously use?
1: Sure. So there are several steps you can take. So you can in America with cash purchase. So I have a Android phone that I've purchased with cash that's not linked to me in any way. Now you do need to know that like phones track your location. However if the like there's, I think three things in the phone, Edward Snowden describes this very well. Uh, there's like, there's like a Bluetooth piece, a Wi-Fi piece, and then the actual telecom piece itself. Uh, so all, all three pieces, like if the government was knew who you, if the government was able to link the little dot to you, they'd understand your behavior, right. Without needing to do much else. But if you buy a phone with cash, okay, now I have this device that's not linked to me. You can set up a Google account with a fake email. Okay. You can start to use the app store. You can download a Bitcoin wallet. Okay. So I have one of these, I have a Android phone. That's just like completely unlinked to me that I can use to do stuff. That's kind of cool. So a way you could even go further, which I'm excited to do at some point is install an operating system like graphene or copperhead, which completely kills all the Google products uh, and allows you to really live like bare minimum, but like, you know, really in a private way. Um, and then from there you can install whether, whatever apps you want, uh, signal, for example, and signals knows this phone number, which is not attached to your identity, which is on a phone. That's not serving up advertising stuff to anybody. You can do it. It's just difficult. It's like, I, what I would say is like having reasonable privacy in the West today requires a hobbyist level of time investment, meaning you need to spend basically a couple hours a week on it. Um, You you, you need to basically treat it as a hobby. That is unfortunate, but it's the way it is.
0: How do you change that?
1: Uh, Well, I mean, I think that what we saw with the Snowden revelations is that um, corporations can change with provided incentives and, and the makers of applications can change provided incentives. So the Snowden revelations led eventually to WhatsApp adopting end to end encryption. Right. Um, And, you know, we don't necessarily know if it's like pure, let's say, but um, very good either way. Um, They didn't do that to like make more money. Uh, You know, I think they did that under some sort of pressure from their customers that that their customers wanted privacy earlier this year, people fled uh, WhatsApp in droves. Once they realized it was going to share everything with Facebook, we got that little messenger. That's why everybody went to signal. Okay. So, uh, there, the, the things are changing, like more and more people are appreciating privacy and, and, and the tools are getting better. So the UX is really key. Like, uh, the, the UX difference between using PGP and signal is freaking massive. I mean, it's like, it's so hard to get people to use PGP and it's so easy to get people to download signal. So I think a political events can trigger change snowden revelations B the UX improvements the mobile friendly improvements in some of these apps are amazing, especially in in Bitcoin too. Like 10 years ago, like there was no like Bitcoin mobile wallet. Like it would, none of this stuff existed today. You can like relatively privately use Bitcoin on an Android phone with an app that like is very strong, let's put it that way, and, and very intuitive to use. And these things are just going to continue to improve in the future. So the good news so is we- there's browsers, I mean, for yeah, browsers- Yeah, you, there's, there's browsers, DuckDuckGo, there's browsers, there's Brave, like there, there are browsers that that steal less of your information about you and serve it up now. So you'd
0: use a DuckDuckGo search engine, uh, would you use Minds instead of Facebook? In social media,
1: that's also- Yeah, you know, so people- like also, uh, farming your information. Yes, and that's- a, that's a choice people need to make. Like I have a public personality. I'm like out there advocating from stuff. I have all kinds of social media and I've made a choice that whatever I've put into those apps is going to be farmed out to whomever. But that's a decision I've made. I also know people who don't go on social media at all for this reason. They don't, I know someone who doesn't even allow her, if you go to her house, she does not, she she explicitly says, please do not put this into Google Maps. Okay. I would say she's, more on the intense side, (laughs) but, but like you can, you know, there are steps you can take. I mean, again, for me, I'm a public person. So I'm like, I I have a Twitter account, Instagram account. Like I need these things to reach my audience or whatever. But like, I I also have made that decision to be a public person. Um, pseudonymity is very helpful on on the internet. Right. So this is why I really support Twitter allowing uh, pseudonymous accounts. So if I didn't, if I was fearful about implications of what I said, then I would want an anonymous account. Well, I know a lot of people, I, I just interviewed a guy today for a big essay I wrote who's from Sudan, and he runs a pseudonymous NIM on Twitter. Very important, because he can't have the government knowing his real name. Okay, so it's like the ability to do pseudonymous social media is really, really big. So just to repeat quickly, political events can trigger change that where users demand more out of their technology providers. Then you have the ongoing UX improvements over time of privacy technologies which which are real real i mean these are real improvements and and significant every 18 months they really improve whether it be uh encrypted messengers vpns mulvad is the one i would recommend m-u-l-l-v-a-d really great vpn you can pay with cash if you want you can mail them cash if you're paranoid or you can pay in bitcoin it's very cool um very cheap too uh and audited heavily um and open source it's open vpn architecture so open source is key uh, and then and then. Um, yeah. And then you just like continue to push down this road. But I mean, freedoms are one not or, you know, you don't you're not given them like you have to kind of fight for them is, is what I've obviously realized through my work. Um,
0: lastly, let's let's go sort of like long term. We've talked about things that are actually right out there right now. And these yeah. are things people can do if they care about these things, or they can choose to sort of say that you're overblowing it. And you know, they're, they're quite fine with it, right? Because you have said, I'm fine with many of these things, because I'm a public person.
1: Others and could I've, say,
0: I'm fine with many of these things, because it gives me what I want well, in my life. I right. Can- well, and I, I live in a
1: democracy. so this is uh, a big And difference. I live in
0: a democracy. Right, right, right. right. So, but looking, you know, long, more long term, next decade, even longer, like wh- where is this going? I mean, are you confident that the kind of line of reasoning that you're putting up here stands a leg at kind of tilting countries or company practices in right. a direction that you like? Or, or do you not see that going this way?
1: Yeah. So, the big, big change that I think is going to happen and it'll be a subtle one um is with currency itself uh for so many people around the world not necessarily in the scandics like norway i think has the least cash usage per capita of any country in the world to give you an example but uh around the around the globe uh paper money is still really important as a savings instrument for informal economies etc for people who are unbanked etc for billions of people cash is really important so, cash is going to be replaced this decade by what are called central bank digital currencies. They are also direct liabilities of the central bank, like cash, but they will be in your mobile wallet instead. And they will give the authorities a much more fine-grained ability to control the economy, to force spending during a downturn, to implement negative interest rates, to uh, you know blacklist people they don't like, um, to more easily track what people are doing with 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 essentially cash. Um, so this is all going to be implemented over the next decade. Some people will be able to fight it. Others won't. The EU has made it very clear that there will be no anonymity in the system. Christine Lagarde has has gone on the record saying there will not be anonymity in the digital euro. Obviously, the digital yuan is a, is a surveillance mechanism. As far as what's happening in the US, Jay Powell at the Fed is clear that they're going to make one, but they're being careful and cautious and they want to learn from other countries first, which is an interesting way of putting it. Um, So this will happen and, and that is in many ways going to take people's freedom away from them because again, how you behave, transact and buy things, purchase, sell, this reveals a huge amount about you. So what's really interesting is that, is that Bitcoin is like growing at the same time. So people are able to like opt out of that system and into Bitcoin if they wish whether it's for savings, for remittances, cross-border payments, creating informal economies. So wherever they're going to be like stopped by this increasingly centralized digital financial and communication system, I'll add, they'll have an option in Bitcoin. It's already here. I mean, I read an article yesterday, 45 million Americans own Bitcoin. I mean, that's a lot of Americans. I mean, we're talking probably 20%. So I mean, we've already reached, we've crossed the Rubicon here is, I guess, what I'm saying, like with this technology and we've crossed it. People, people have acquired Bitcoin totally for self-interested reasons. Almost everybody. They just want to get rich and they just that's all. That's all. It's a limit of their understanding. What they don't, what they don't, what they may not appreciate is that it's a freedom tool is that like when you it's this big feedback loop where like if you buy bitcoin and you invest and in you start holding it you're like strengthening the network for ever, all the other users which include millions of people in authoritarian regimes and emerging markets who deal with double or triple digit inflation bank closures the internet going out and and like not being able to have bank banking for months um you know it's totally centralized uh you know influence over what they can do in Where they can spend their money. Sanctions. I mean, so many countries unfairly have sanctions by my government against their people, Iran or Cuba being good examples. Like the Cuban people are innocent. Like they didn't do anything wrong, but they're like embargoed from the US. How is that fair? I mean, my government is punishing the Cuban dictatorship because they're in a geopolitical strife. But The Cuban people suffer because they have to use this horrible currency there, which has just been devalued. Well, today they don't have to anymore. They freely trade Bitcoin using Telegram. Ditto Iran. Iranians, they didn't even get to elect their leaders who are evil and who are like supporting the Syrian government and stuff. So young men and women in Iran, now they have an option. They can like receive money from abroad using Bitcoin. So to me, it's like a radical freedom tool. It's very interesting to watch. It's going to have a huge impact on the humanitarian space. A lot of aid and giving is done through all these middlemen and third parties. Huge waste. Sometimes more than 70% of the donations you give to like people in agricultural communities, let's say. Yeah, it's in surprising, Nigeria, actually, how slow so the apps for, for that sector have been digitizing uh, you know, or gotten well, onto ledgers. Well, yes. People are afraid of it. I mean, there there's so much capture. There's so much rent-seeking. So when you're confronted with a technology that removes the ability to rent-seek, I mean, that's a problem. So you know, look at all these the industries that have, pr- that have sprouted up to be the middlemen between you and the person you're trying to help. And they take a cut and they take a cut and they take a cut. So there's going to be so much inertia and pushback against Bitcoin, but it doesn't matter in the end because all the people like who might be professionally speaking against it, they're eventually going to want to buy it for themselves and their family. So it's like, it's kind of a interesting game theory here. So the way I'll close is by saying, I've never seen an incentive alignment before like this. Normally, profit-seeking is at odds with human rights, meaning usually I'm like arguing against businessmen who are doing, doing business in China. And I'm trying to tell them, you shouldn't, you shouldn't do business with China. You like, like really, this is a, they're genociding Muslims. They're doing terrible things. Please don't do that. Um, they, a, a U.S. government officials and corporations say, it's okay. Hillary Clinton, when she got to China, she was like, we're going to put human rights to the side. Uh, same thing with Trump, same thing with all of our leaders. Um, Biden, especially, he's going to focus on climate instead of human rights. So you've got all these people who are willing to push human rights aside because they don't align with the incentive of having this like relationship with China. Okay. With Bitcoin, it's different. You have the same in your side of incentive. You want to just like do business. You want to make money. You want to like accumulate Bitcoin for your future or whatever. What, what you don't realize though is that like your action is empowering all the other bitcoin users who of uh, millions of whom are in china so like this is fascinating because i, I don't it, it removes the whole need to be altruistic or choreograph some sort of like fake interest in like helping people abroad who cares like you can be greedy and self self-serving and self-interested and it doesn't matter because your attraction to this asset and this technology and this ecosystem and this industry is going to empower other people elsewhere regardless of whether you like it or not. I've never seen this alignment of incentives before. That's why I'm so interested in it. Wow. So uh, in
0: closing human rights for you in the long perspective is, is actually going
1: going well. I, I that's an optimistic <laughs> that's, view from <laughs> human. That, that rights. That is a going, generous interpretation of what I've said. I guess uh, I will, I will rephrase a little bit and just say I'm hopeful. Whereas, you know, maybe I wouldn't be so hopeful 10 years ago. Like I, I, I think we can fight back. And, and it gives me great hope. Um, but it's a big struggle, man. It's a mountain to, to, to climb. We'll put it that way.
0: Well, thanks for sharing, Alex. It's been, uh, it's been very interesting. Thanks a lot. Thank you for having me. You have just listened to episode 103 of the Futurized podcast with host Ronarne Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was the future of freedom. And in this conversation, we talked about what it means to be an open society in the age of technology. My takeaway is that freedoms need to be protected one at a time, always, and as society and technology changes more often than you would think. The future of freedom is only as bleak or bright as we ensure it will become through keeping a close watch. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurized.org or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 102, The Geotech Decade, Episode 52, The Future of Peer-to-Peer. Or Episode 98, Free Speech on Social Media. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.